from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Everybody, this is Stephen Spashney, and you have just tuned into episode three of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. We have a fantabulous show lined up for you. I've got an interview with comic book industry legend Joe Field. This is the guy who single-handedly not only founded Free Comic Book Day, but I do believe, and I will stand by my statement that he is the man responsible for Record Store Day. And besides, he's a Power Pop fan, too. Plus, I've got an interview with Blanket of Secrecy's Andrew Howell. If you don't know who Blanket of Secrecy is, then you are going to find out that they are one of the finest bands, and they put out one of the best albums of 1982, and you've never heard it? Well, you're going to hear their story and a whole lot more Right here on Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Hey, it's time for a double dose of delicious!
That is two in a row from Arthur Alexander. You will remember Arthur from the two bands he was in in the late 70s, early 80s. He was in The Poppies and Sorrows. And those are brand new from Arthur. Both are available on his album, One Bar Left. You heard the songs just a little longer and the title track, One Bar Left. And you are listening to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! You got the beach, you got the blanket, you got the fort, you got the bingo, you got the podcast, and what's not to love? Joe Field is not your average comic book geek. And when I say average comic book geek, I'm actually referring to myself. No, Joe Field is a comic guru. Not only did he found Free Comic Book Day, he's also one of the co-owners of WonderCon, and he runs his own shop called Flying Colors Comics and Other Cool Stuff in Concord, California. Dub, dub, dub. Dot Even cooler than his comic book pedigree, Joe is a Power Pop fan. So, since I like to bring the worlds of comic books and Power Pop together here at Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, I thought I'd contact Joe and discuss his career and his love of comics and music. I learned a lot during our conversation, and I appreciate the time that Joe spent with me. So please enjoy our conversation here on Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Before we get into our chat about music, I'd like to dip into the world of comics first. Now, do you remember the exact moment that you first became fascinated with comic books? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the story is um, uh, early summer, 1967. I was 11 years old. And, uh, on the third day of summer, I was teaching a four year old kid how to climb trees when I fell out of one from about 20 feet and I broke my arm in several places. And that ended my summer fun of playing baseball and swimming and all that other kind of good stuff. And it required me to spend the night in the hospital for surgery. And, uh, when I got home from the hospital, my friend from down the street knew that I was going to be laid up for a while, so he brought me two comic books. He brought me Amazing Spider-Man number 51 and Fantastic Four 65. And 1967 for me was not the summer of love. It was the summer of comics. So uh, that's where it started. You know, music geekery or, or um, music fanboyism it tends to be more accepted and that there's still a stigma attached to comic book collecting. But have you noticed any change in the public's perception of the comic community? Oh, oh sure. And, you know, I've been a part of that work uh, through some of the things that I've done in the industry, but um, there are probably more kids reading comics now than uh, there have been at any time since uh, at least the late 1960s, I'd say. Um, and uh, there was a time when comics were totally ubiquitous. In the 40s and early 50s, um, uh, research was done that showed that 95% of all boys under the age of 12 were regular comic book readers, and 89% of girls were uh, uh, in the same age group were also regular comics readers. It, uh, and then, you know, it was like 40% of adults from 
25 to 40 were regular comic book readers back then. There wasn't a stigma put on it until uh, the government came knocking and saying that it was, um, you know, a cause of juvenile delinquency. Uh, and that sort of stifled the growth of comics in uh, the United States. But, uh, you know, uh, post-World War II, uh, the rest of the world was having to rebuild uh, their their countries and their cultures from the ground up. Uh, but uh, in, the, in the U.S., uh, where we were, um, you know, we had a, a lot of people coming back from war, but we didn't have the war really on our soil at all. Um, we... We were kind of fat and happy in the 50s. And so um, uh, crazy people uh, like uh, Estes Kavaver and Joe McCarthy went after things like comic books and and uh, and movies as uh, terrible things. So um, uh, that really stifled the growth of comics. But we've really seen a resurgence in comics uh Particularly, um, well, it, I can't say particularly. I mean, it's been across the board. There, there really are comics for everybody now, and uh, we, we see teachers much more accepting because kids are visual learners these days. And uh, um, uh, you know, yesterday a, a class set of the American-born Chinese graphic novel just went out of here for a high school English class. Uh, so forty kids are going to be gobbling that book up and. Uh, getting um, uh, some, you know, nice uh, lessons that go along with it. There's uh, uh, comics are probably comic culture is everywhere. Comic books, not as much. And uh, uh, my goal is hoping that uh, all of these people who geek out on uh, these big superhero movies or the indie movies that are related to comics that, uh, some people don't know uh, have comics origins, like uh, Atomic Blonde uh, recently, the Charlize Theron movie that's based on a comic book. You know, um, I, you know, the idea is let's see if we can't get some of those people to to give comics a try. And uh, uh, there, uh, what I'm finding though is there's a disconnect between people who like to just passively sit in a dark theater or watch something on TV and those who are willing to actively and passionately seek things out and, and want to get into deeper stories. And to me, that's the connection between uh, the power pop world and comics is that uh, the people who are into power pop and uh, also uh, on my end, uh, the, the progressive realm there, these are uh, music consumers who are still very passionate about what they like and are willing to go out of their way to discover new things, to try new things, to buy new things. Um, so I think there's there's a real corollary between comics and music in that regard. Was getting into the comic book business part of your overall plan, or did you sort of accidentally fall into it? <laughs> it uh, totally by accident. Um, I worked in radio from 78 to 88. Uh, I was uh, sales and marketing and a little bit of production for uh, KJLY AM in Stockton, California, which was a, a sort of a, a small but powerhouse top 40 station uh, back in those days. 
Um, and uh, towards the end of my time there, I, I really started to get kind of bored with what was going on. Um, so uh, I did, um, uh, as a part of my job as sort of a, a marketing guy, uh, I did a promotion in Stockton to have Marvel Comics named Stockton as the birthplace of the Fantastic Four for Marvel's 25th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I put a petition in the local comic shop, Al's Comics in Stockton, and they're still going. This is more than 30 years later. Um, and then stood up in front of the Stockton City Council and asked them to get behind it. Um, and when I did that, uh, it hit the uh, Associated Press and United Press International news wires. And I had reporters calling and wanting to find out what this crazy stunt was all about. Um, and one of those reporters, who was a very well-respected uh, reporter for the L.A. Times, a guy named uh, Charles Hillinger, Chuck Hillinger, um, uh, old school journalism guy who was a, m- a marvelous person. Um, he got in contact with me and spent, he and a photographer spent a day with me in Stockton, uh, talking comics, talking radio. And, uh, he was just trying to get in my head a little bit, but that reporter also contacted Stanley and Stanley, uh, Stanley said, I love the idea. And, the um, current, uh, the editors of that time at Marvel didn't like the idea um, uh, because they had other plans for this place in their uh, fictitious universe called Central City, which is what I wanted Stockton to be renamed. Uh, anyway, um, Stan came to town. Marvel accepted the whole thing. It wound up in their 25th anniversary issue. And at the end of the event, um, Stan said to me, you know, kid, you did a really great job with this promotion. And uh, I said, well, thanks, Dan. If you ever need a PR guy, give me a call. And a few months later, he called me to do PR for his wife's first novel. And that, that got me into comics. It had me talking to, you know, my childhood idol on the phone every day for several months. And uh, soon after that, I was um, um, hired by a group of Bay area comics retailers to, do promotions and advertising for a new little convention they were starting that became WonderCon, which I became co-owner of after a couple of years. So, yes, and and that led into uh, getting out of radio and trying to get into comics full time. And so that's what led to the opening of Flying Colors, which uh, is only, uh, you know, it's less than 10 miles away from where I grew up. So. It was uh, like coming home in a lot of different ways. We'll be right back with more of my interview with Joe Field right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, man, is that first days of summer? Yeah, man. Well, turn it up, man. First days of summer, the brand new album from Michael Simmons.
Days of Summer, the brand new album from Michael Simmons on Crabapple Records, available on LP and compact disc. We now return to my conversation with Joe Field, where we discuss more comic books, more power pop, and more importantly, we discuss something that Joe himself created called Free Comic Book Day, which was the direct inspiration for Record Store Day. I wanted to discuss something that I find pretty amazing, and that is something called Free Comic Book Day. Um, and this actually predated Record Store Day, correct? Well, uh, I, okay, as the founder of Free Comic Book Day, one of the things that I'm proud of is that Record Store Day, because I love music too, Record Store Day came out of Free Comic Book Day. Um, the um, uh, when uh, the success of Free Comic Book Day, which is now going into its seventeenth year, uh, uh, May fifth, uh, twenty eighteen, at comic shops all over the world. Literally, I mean, there's sixty some odd countries involved with it now, um, um, and every year it's the it's the biggest day of the year for for people who like comics and for comics retailers. And, um, as the founder of the event, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I am uh, in awe of all the work that's done to be able to put on such a huge event that I think last year there was something like 1.3 million people who attended free comic book day. Um, it is the world's largest comics related event. And, um, not that I have anything to do with it being the largest, but, the fact that I'm the founder of it is just, uh, you know, is a very, very much um, a cool deal. Um, so uh, I, I have a friend who has a couple of stores, a couple of comic shops in the state of Maine and uh, called Casablanca Comics. So visit them in Portland, uh, Portland and Wyndham, Maine. Uh, and it was uh Outside one of his stores, uh, he had a long line for free comic book day, and his store was close to um, a small, uh, not a, a record store that is part of a, a small chain of stores in that area. And the the gentleman who, uh, uh, from that record store, was also heavily involved with uh, the Independent Record Store Dealers Association. And when he saw the line for free comic book day, he said, we need to do this for record stores. And that was the genesis of how record store day, uh, got off the ground. 
And the cool thing about Record Store Day is that what that's done is it spurred the growth of, of vinyl sales. Um, and if you look at it, comics, which uh, uh, have been long chastised for being uh, sort of this ancient um, kids format and, uh, you know, this uh, this medium that it, uh, uh, still is set in its ways because we still have 32 page pamphlets that we're selling every month. And isn't that old school and all that kind of stuff? Well, uh, no, it's, it's, it's still quite vibrant and, and viable, but this, this little thing that we do here spurred the growth in taking music back to its final roots. And, uh, I, I think that's a pretty sweet deal. Speaking about record store day, you're, you're a big music fan as well. Do you remember that Eureka moment? What was the moment where you connected with music? <laughs> this sounds really, really funny. And this is not this is not how I connected with music, but I still own the very first 45 I ever bought. I bought a 45 with my dad when I was four years old uh, at a little record shop in Moraga, California, um, in the Ream Shopping Center. And it was the theme song to the Quick Draw McGraw El Cabong cartoon. I still have that 45 with the um, unforgettable B-side called Ooch Ooch Ouch. And I don't care if folks declare I'm a grouch. He's a grouch, he's a grouch, he's a grouch. If I get hit, <laughs> la dee da dee da the end it hurts. La-la-la-la-la-la, I say, ouch, 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 ouch. Come on now, everybody. Ouch! And don't you forget it. My aha moment when it came to power pop, even though I bought raspberries and uh, all kinds of stuff like that in the 70s, uh, my aha moment was, uh, uh, it goes back to comics. And uh, Mike Barron and Steve Rood, produced a, a long running series called Nexus and they would occasionally send out newsletters uh, and Mike uh, would write the Nexus newsletter. And in those newsletters, he would talk about the music he was listening to. And in one of those, he mentioned uh, not lame uh, recordings, uh, a power pop label out of Colorado uh, and mentioned that they had a free sampler that you could send away for. Uh, and he also mentioned a few a few bands that he was listening to at that time. And remain a fan of Bruce Brodeen's Not Lame label. Now, you had you you were working on a project with him that didn't really come to fruition. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it, uh, when I saw the the deep similarities between um, indie power pop fans and comics fans, this is just it's a natural, and that was the the idea was to take some of my, uh, a group of my favorite power pop artists have them do covers of songs that, uh, deal with, with comics, uh, 
um, you know, uh, the kinks wish I could fly like Superman or, or, uh, Magneto and Titanium man from Paul McCartney and wings or, um, um, elephants, Superman, not the REM Superman. The, okay. I can go back to the, the, the Buddha label that, uh, that originally was on. Um, but, uh, and then the idea was to get them to do, uh, it would be a two disc thing. The one disc would be comics covers. And then the other disc would be songs of theirs to promote them and it would be a way to try to get um uh comic fans uh to listen to some music that they wouldn't normally like or listen to um and uh find some find some new artists to to support uh either you know via mail order like i did with uh, not lame or in some of the local uh shops that, that carry some of the smaller label stuff um Unfortunately, that was coming together at a time when um, the whole music business was going through just um, an earthquake. Uh, so the, the, that project is gone, and so is not lame. Uh, but uh, I, I still believe that there are some um, strong connections between uh, the music and, and comics markets in terms of how people connect to the, the creativity uh, and uh, and how uh, much a part of their lives it becomes. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of rabid uh, fans in both, uh, in both markets uh, uh, always want what the next thing is. And, uh, but, but, but also have a reverence, uh, you know, have a, always have a place for what came before it. Alongside power pop, you were also a fan of prog rock, most notably, yeah. most notably Spock's beard. Some would consider those styles polar opposites, but I don't think that that's the case at all. No, anybody who's a big power pop fan, I just, uh, you know, have you put on, uh, put on a song called June, uh, that, it, you know, has great harmonies and it has a, a, a real hook to it. Uh, there's, uh, all, on almost every album that uh, Spock's Beard does, there's uh, uh, something that just uh, raises the hair on the back of my neck. Um, and it was getting into that band. That was that was one of those things. I've I, I've long been a, a Genesis fan, and one of the uh, people who used to shop in in my store would say, "You know, you're a Genesis fan. You're going to like this band called Spock's Beard." And like. Oh yeah, whatever. And I, I put it off and I put it off and, uh, bought one of their CDs and I started to listen to it. And I went, Oh, that's too metal for me. I just can't like that. You know, that's, uh, and so I put it to the side. I decided there were, we had a trip where we would drive up to Lake Tahoe, which is a, you know, two and a half hour drive each way. I thought, okay, we're going to put this thing on and, and listen to it. And I had my wife in the car and, and, she went, wow, that music's really good. Listen to, you know, there's, there's catchy melodies. There's really good playing. Um, there's all the things that I look for in, in power pop, um, uh, with, you know, just maybe a little bit more stretched out on the way home. She decided she wanted to listen to it again, but read the lyrics. And at the end of it, it was like, Oh, we got to get everything these guys have ever made. <laughs> And, and, and what that became was this, uh, you know, another deep dive into, uh, independent progressive music. And, um, uh, we've taken 
only, you know, in the 39 years we've been married, we've been out of the United States twice in 2015 and 2017. And both of those times were to see a band called Big Big Train in concert. Oh, uh, with Dave Gregory. Uh, with Dave Gregory from XTC, absolutely. And then and Nick Virgilio from Spock's Beard is their drummer. But we're just insane about music. That's what the deal is, what, what it comes down to. I've traveled all kinds of different places to see music. And, um, and But the only two times we've been to Europe were to see concerts. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's a, there's an old saying, there's an old saying that says, um, you go where you're fed and, uh, and, and, and that works with, uh, that works, you know, from a musical standpoint or from a work standpoint or a spiritual, whatever is, you know, we, we all have a tendency to go where we're fed. Yeah, there's a there's a saying that I came up with. Some of my best friends are three minutes long. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. In 1982, I stumbled upon an album called Ears Have Walls by a band called Blanket of Secrecy. Everything about the band was a mystery, although I did recognize the name of producer Roger Bacherian, plus Jack Hughes from Huang Chung, and this was pre-Wang Chung, by the way. Jack Hughes wrote and arranged one of the tracks on the album. Of course, seeing Roger and Jack's name on the album, I immediately bought it. I mean, look. Not knowing the band never stopped me from buying an album before. But when I got this album home, it blew me away. But I still didn't know anything about the band because they were shrouded in mystery, shrouded in a blanket of secrecy. The song titles were credited to writers such as Tinker, Tater, Soldier, Spy. It wasn't until years later on the internet when I discovered Gary Marr had cracked the code, and had discovered the band members' names. We're talking three decades later. I want band member Andrew Howell to tell you the story of Blanket of Secrecy. Andrew was gracious enough to spend time with both Gary and I and discuss the history of the band. I hope you find it as fascinating as I did. First off, Andrew, can you give us a little background on your career leading up to Blanket of Secrecy? Um, there is a guy called Michael J. McAvoy, who is an American, funny enough, um, but he moved to England many years ago, and his parents were teachers at the Pimlico, uh, the American school in Pimlico. Um, but they weren't allowed to teach him, so they sent him to the school I was at, which was in Thomas More uh, Secondary Modern in Elton. Mike is a genius musician. At the age of 14, he was playing in the London School Symphony Orchestra, the London School Jazz Orchestra. I was getting the cane a lot, so they made me a prefect. 
And my job was to kick people out of the school, right? That's what you do. So uh, my first day, they sent me up to the music practice room, the music room area, and I heard somebody playing the guitar. Uh, and I burst in thinking, great, now I'm going to kick some little butt here. So I went in, and it was Mike. And, he, and I said, you've got to get out. And he said, no, man, I'm learning something. I'm learning something. So he said, can you play anything? I said, no, get out. Uh, he said, please, let me, let me just try something. So he gave me a Spanish nylon classical guitar. Uh, put, it, put it in my hand, put my finger. It's a bit like School of Rock, you know, only Jack Black puts the girl's finger on the bass guitar and says, that's a G. Uh, and he said, just can you go boom, 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 boom. And the rest is history, because after that, um, he asked me to become the bass player in his band. Uh, we played three gigs, and the third gig was the Royal Albert Hall for the uh, American uh, Bicentennial Celebration Independence, July the 4th, 1976, I think that was. Played Long Train Running by the Doobie Brothers and Tush, was easy top backed by a 500-piece schoolgirl choir. Uh, wonderful stuff. Um, his mum and dad contacted me and said, uh, uh, Michael's got to concentrate on his classical music and he's not doing rock and roll anymore. So that was knocked on the head. Uh, and it was then that I started, I met up with Ashley Cadell, Dave McMullen and Andy McLaughlin, and we formed a punk rock band called The Rats. We then changed the name of The Rats to the, uh, because the Boomtown Rats came along and became The Red Lights. So I was bass player in The Red Lights, didn't write anything, just sort of had fun, played the bass and, you know, did gigs. I'm so at home here Don't ever want to leave, leave, leave my sewer Never want to leave, leave, leave my sewer Never want to leave, leave, leave my sewer I'm all right um, And then that finished... I mean, we were doing really well, actually. Really, we had a single out and everything. Um, and we were produced by Glenn Tilbrook, who was a mate of ours, um, by and John Wood, who was the original squeeze engineer, I think, recording engineer and producer. And anyway, they had a falling out, so we never got the tapes because John Wood wouldn't hand them over. So anyway, that was it. We were going somewhere, but it seemed to collapse in a heap, so we gave it up. I went to Paris to play a short tour with a rock and roll band uh, doing Parisian nightclubs, which was really good fun. And part of the deal there was that we would record um, a song that had been written by somebody for Chapel Aznavour in Paris. So that's what we did. And Pete Marsh was brought in to do the vocal part because the singer in the rock and roll band wasn't a rock singer. So Pete knew me, but I didn't know him. There you go. He said, oh, no, he said, I've seen you by a northern accent. I've seen you play loads of times, lad. You know, you're brilliant. I love your bass playing, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then we came back and formed a very small band just for a bit called Paris off the back of that. And Pete Marsh on vocals um, and guitar, me on the bass, a guy called Steve Forward, who's still an engineer in Paris. He's He was on guitar and Paul Gum was on the drums and he was Squeeze's original, original drummer. So we had quite a good time with Squeeze anyway. But then um, Pete said, yeah, I've got to do some demo time at Rockfield to do some stuff. Would you come play the bass? You get paid three days, £100 a day. So I said, yes. So... That's how it all started. And then, um, so I hadn't really done that much, to be honest. Uh, I'd never been to Rockfield Studios, never heard of it. Uh, didn't know Roger Bashirian, didn't know anything about anything. But um, when I got there, I was absolutely blown away. You and P 
Pete had started a musical partnership. Did you two start out basically as a songwriting outlet or was Blanket of Secrecy the idea all along? So the original idea was Pete was going to be Pete Marsh solo. And um, that's that's what he was doing. It was his, they were his songs. There was nothing I'd written at that point. I was literally just there as a bass player. But by the end of the, the time, I was I got paid for three days. I was there for five, seven days, actually, in the end. And I just wanted to hang out. And in the end, they said, will you write with Pete permanently? Because I, I put in some, shall we say, some happy ideas. Pete could be a little bit intense. So Roger liked the way I did things. So that's how I started with Pete. But originally, it was supposed to be Pete Marsh. And he was going to sign to Island Records. Anyway, the guy who owned Islands didn't like Jake Riviera, who was Pete's manager, so that didn't happen. And um, Jake came up with the idea of doing something else. Do you remember what was going on musically at the time that the band came together? I and mean, was there a certain musical movement that inspired the direction? I mean, you weren't quite electronic, but you weren't guitar-based either. When we wrote stuff, um, we had a Casio keyboard, and the Casio keyboard had to play the part of what we imagined would be the band so there'd be a piano well it sounded more like pick, 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 you know uh, and an organ well it didn't sound like anything really and strings and a single violin which is like so the keyboard wasn't intended to become the band it was trying to recreate parts that we assumed would be played by other people in the band so we were we were being the keyboard player, the organist, and the string arrangers, and all of that with these funny little sounds. But there was no, there was no, we didn't have a synth, we didn't have the, didn't have a polymove until we got in there to start recording. And Paul Cobble gave us that one to use. Uh, apart from that, it was a Doctor Rhythm drum machine, a bass guitar, and um, and a Fender Strat, and Beats old acoustic. inspiration wise like I said I hadn't done very much I'd been involved in punk and rock and roll and stuff like that and I wasn't a great listener as far as other music was concerned so I, I went into it with fairly open sort of uneducated musical background which is probably but, what helped inform the band possibly because I, I wasn't inspired by the same people that Pete was I mean I'd never heard anything by Pink Floyd I'd never listened to Rod Stewart and the Faces I'd never listened to Deep Purple or anything like that um, status quo, you know, I was a big fan of. Um, early 1970s stuff still inspires me. I'm actually writing uh, like uh, some glam, 1970s glam punk stuff now. So I was inspired more by Sweet, um, Susie Quattro, all those real poppy, rocky sort of things. How how long did it take to get the deal with FBeat? Okay, right. Well, like I said, Pete had originally been going was going to Ireland, um, but they didn't want to touch him because of they didn't like Jake Riviera, which is weird because Jake's a really nice bloke. I really like him. And, um, but there was a guy working at Ireland called Andrew Lawler, Lauder, who was really fed up that Ireland wouldn't touch Pete because he really wanted to do it. And he left Ireland and phoned Jake up and said, can I come and work for you so I can get involved in this, this project? 
So Jake said, yeah, so Andrew Northern moved to FB Riviera Global. Um, and as a consequence, Jake had already was managing Roger because that's uh, part of his job. And he was already involved with that. So it wasn't like we had to convince anyone. Everyone was already in place. Um, and when it came to doing the thing in with Warner Brothers, I, I believe we hold a record. Um, they'd have to be checked up. But I think as an unheard of, unknown British band that never had a, a contract before to sign directly to the United States was um, unheard of at the time. Say You Will was the album's first single, started receiving airplay in the U.S. Even though it wasn't this massive hit, does it surprise you that it's still adored by so many some 36 years after it was released? Well, it, it doesn't surprise me that people like the track because it's absolutely brilliant. And um, I think, if I'm correct, Warner Brothers shifted 20,000 units of that album in a month, which was pretty dramatic, again, for an unheard of British band to sell that many albums in a month. What tracks remain your favourites? I love Young Heart. Young Heart was, um, I'd written a great deal of the lyric on that one. It was about a girl I met called Judith, who, who was really, um, really good looking girl. And she was, a, she was a typical sort of rock chick, but she was like a 1960s model. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, and she broke my heart. She kicked me in the shins all the time and told me to shave. And <laughs> really bad news. Don't tell me to shave. Uh, so that was about her. I really like that. Lo lovely too. I like them all, you see. I'm going to say photograph would be my next one. The child in There was a buzz building about the band. Obviously, you had positive uh, reaction in the U.S. Did the label send you back to say, hey, put together a second album before we put you on tour? Or was, was that your decision to go back and take these tracks that didn't make the first album and then create the second album? No, you were right in the first instance, but it was Jake. Um who we, we had, well, the support tour was with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But Jake said, you're going to go and do this tour. You haven't got time or you won't have time to do a second album for a long, 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 long time to come. So as you've got time, as you're sort of there and all set up, start immediately. Just go back in and do it and do the second album. And uh, that, that was because we wouldn't have had time because of the tour. So you were right on the first instance. Jake paid for it. It wasn't Warner Brothers that paid studio time, it was Jake. Was there a song from these sessions that, that stood out, like Say You Will did? Because for me, something like We Should Be Old Enough or even Mr. Munson would have made a great single if the album had come out. Was there anything you had in mind? Um, Mr. Munson, funnily enough, you should mention that, is one of my favourites of um, the lot. That is a Pete Marsh, uh, Ron Chadwick composition. I didn't, I didn't write that. Um, 
I really like that. And again, it's got Pete Thomas playing drums on it. Um, but Pete Thomas wasn't involved in the first album. Um, Carlene sung some backing vocals, Carlene Carter on the second album, but she wasn't, you know, it was like there was there was such a separation between the two on, on who was going to be playing and who was going to, I mean, we didn't have any live drums, drummer. We played all the drums individually ourselves on the first album. So there was a kind of a sound to it and a feel to it which we didn't or we didn't think we could use these other people on. The children round the corner are throwing stones to pass There was a U.S. tour planned with Tom Petty. The second album was essentially finished. The future was looking bright. And it then, certainly was. And then your lead singer quits. Yes. How did that come about? Memories is quite sketchy, but I think somebody tried to get him a solo deal with Warner Brothers in London. But basically, Pete ended up in a position where he said he didn't trust uh, Jake and he wasn't sure and... So in the, everybody tried to talk to him, and in the end, they sent me down there and said, you've got to talk to Pete. I said, what do I know? You know I'm 22. I'll talk to him. And I said, what's the problem? He said, I don't trust Jake. And I said, well, nor do I. You know, I like him, but I don't trust anyone in the music business. Do you, really? After the band split, you worked with Simon Byrne, and one of the things that you did that a lot of people might find interesting is the fact that you co-wrote Heart and Soul, which ended up on the Monkees album, Pool It. Now, yep. I know that Roger produced that record. Did you actually write it specifically for the Monkees project? No, it was never written for the Monkees. Um, when I, uh, Simon Byrne um, would do most of like the lyrics and melodies and stuff, and I would do the, the music. We had an agreement that um, we'd split everything 50-50. It was a very amicable agreement, you know, because if the backing track didn't exist, then the music wouldn't, uh, the, the lyrics wouldn't exist and vice versa. But I had written that in mind because of the riff. I was thinking Rolling Stones, you know, to be honest. Because, uh, well, I, you know, because when you're writing stuff, and you, you come up with it, it goes, I can see Kiss Richard up yeah, do this, man. Yeah, this is really cool. Um, but the lyric was a little bit sweet, a little bit nice, um, which is it, it, it wasn't quite um, a Rolling Stones lyric. But um, in fact, I was quite fed up when Roger phoned up from L.A. and said that they want to use your song. I'm like, really? What, the monkeys? Oh, do me a favour. So I got three phone calls that week. They really want to do it. They've done it. They love it. Um, can it be the A side? Yes, it's the A side. So first release. Put your heart and soul in- 
Slowly over the years, you and Peter have become friends again, and Peter and Roger's relationship has improved. And both you and Peter have actually written and recorded a few songs together. Is there any plans on a possible third Blanket of Secrecy record based on the songs you've already put together? There was talk, but I've we've we've written new songs since um and there are a lot of old demos that were really actually quite good songs uh, and then pete and i uh, wrote some stuff together over the last three years when roger said he was going to release the album pete said well should we do some more stuff just in case um so we've written some new stuff it's a bit difficult doing it online i mean it's great that you can do it online but we're, we were used to being in the same room together so if he's got an idea for a backing track or i've got something and you send it, but we're not in the same room connecting in the same way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean, sorry, it doesn't mean that we can't still write together. It just means that it's slightly different. But there again, the way things are done nowadays has changed. So it's going to have an effect uh, on, on the way things turn out. But no, there's loads of stuff, loads and loads. Of stuff. these years you're still writing and recording right i do have a fully functioning now recording studio here with an overdub suite and everything but the more music i write and the more i'm in here the more fed up i get that i can't do it all the time so um, it's still in there and it's been it's in the blood it's like a drug in fact it's worse than heroin i think when the music gets in you that's it it's there you you can't kick it you can try it where can people find out more about Andrew Howell and your recording studio? Well, I run a website called The One Place Project, and I put all my friends up there. So that's a good site. But if you go ahowellmusic.com, uh, that takes you to my pages on the One Place Project site. Uh, there's also the, the Blanket of Secrecy stuff is also up on the One Place Project as well. So I've combined all the different websites into one. The digitally remastered Blanket of Secrecy debut album Ears Have Walls and the previously unreleased Blanket of Secrecy 2 are both available now through your favorite digital platforms.
Well, gang, that's it for us here at Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. My name is Stephen Spashney, and I'd like to thank our guests, Joe Field. He can be reached at flyingcolorscomics.com and Andrew Howell from Blanket of Secrecy. You can reach him at ahowlmusic.com. Thank you for stopping by, and from all of us here at Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, <laughs> spell you later. Hi, this is Stephen Spashney, and I'd like to welcome you to our post credit scene. This is just a reminder to please subscribe to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Please visit us on Facebook. And if you like what you hear, please leave your comments on your favorite gas station bathroom wall.